Danny Fogarty is West Australia's Australian of the Year for 2019. We just had an iron yarn where we're deconstructing the Fogarty Foundation, how she manages her personal life, and also the challenges that Australians and all young people in the world are facing as we go into this new workforce, the gig economy, and all of the impacts that artificial intelligence is having on the way we learn, the way we live our lives. So tune in and listen in to the Australian of the Year for Western Australia. So Annie Fogarty, thank you so much for joining us on the Iron Yarn podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Lucky. Yeah, um, I guess we like starting off these uh, interviews, chats, yarns, uh, with a quote. So you have a quote you'd like to share? Uh, I have a quote which is relevant to what we do at the foundation, and it's one of Brett's, my husband Brett's quotes, and it's, if not you, then who? Quite often we say, uh, talk about the things which are not right in the world, and the government should do this, or someone should do that, and someone should be you. If, if you want something done, you have to do something yourself. Exactly, and I love that. And I feel so privileged to have seen, like, being around for the Foggy uh, Foundation over a number of years and watch it from afar. Uh, and being as a stakeholder, seeing all the work in the community with UWA. But wind back the clock a bit, when did it start up, the foundation? So the year 2000, so 19 years ago. Next year will be our 20th year. So things have grown and changed a lot since then. Uh, but Brett and I wanted to do something to build stronger communities here in WA. And we thought that would be a great thing for our family. And it's very much a family foundation in that Brett and I run it. He does all the great investment, which allows me to uh, do the social investing side of it. Uh, our daughter, Caitlin, works with us, which is fantastic. And our son, Mitch, is now back here in Perth. And our latest focus is on enterprise. And Mitch is going to be helping us out on that side of things as well. So there's a few there's a few moving parts of the Foggy Foundation. It's not necessarily one thing. Because I remember hearing back in the day, and I loved it, just hearing the sim- not necessarily the, the simplicity of the model. Initially, it's just we're going to invest in young West Australians because we know that West Australia is what we know, yeah? Yeah, well we wanted to have a strong community here and that's what the foundation is about, helping build strong communities. Mm. And we have chosen education as the avenue that we're gonna use to do that because we think good education is great not just for the individuals but for the society as a whole. If Mm. we're all well educated, we're gonna be more prosperous, there'll be less call on the health, welfare and justice systems but each person will be better off to achieve their potential and live fulfilling lives. So we focus on education, but that's obviously quite a broad sector to be working in. Totally, and so one of the big things in my life that I've observed, I've got many friends who've been Fogarty Scholars. So tell me about the Fogarty Scholars. How do you become a Fogarty Scholar? Well, that was very much that we realised that a lot of our really bright students were being offered scholarships to go to other universities. Uh, in other states and that means that they were leaving WA. So we partnered with UWA to provide full financial scholarships but it was very much about offering them the opportunity to study here in WA but building a cohort of other young, high achieving, committed young people to work with because we know on their own they're all going to do good things Mm. but together as a group and a cohort they're going to do great things Mm. which they have shown that they're doing. So there's a leadership program and we support them in their initiatives both while they're at university and once they've left uni as well. And Mitch was recently telling me about the investment fund. Yes. And that's just recently made an investment. Yeah, so this is the scholars 
enterprise investment program. So any scholar who has, a, and these are for-profit ventures that are actually at stage A, so that they are a business and employing people, but they're ready to go the next step. And if it looks viable, then we will support them in their venture. Fantastic. Yeah. What was the business, who was it that you've invested into? The... Uh, so BiblioU, so Dave Sherwood, who amongst other things started Teach, Learn, Grow, which is a great social enterprise, Fantastic. taking tertiary students out to regional primary schools to tutor one-on-one -on -one with um, students there. So a win for the students at the school. Not only are they getting tutoring in maths, but it's also a mentoring about life outside of school and outside their town and aspirations. Great volunteering, all the great good things that volunteering brings. Mm. And all these young people, even though they're not necessarily going to go on and be teachers, they're going to be great advocates for public education and the need for equity in education. Exactly, yeah, yeah. fantastic. And then, so how many scholars are there now? So there are 58 studying, sorry, 65 studying at UWA at the moment, and 85, 85. Um, alumni, so 140. Eight, I think. In you know, community. yes, yeah. Wow. Which, you know, and some of them here and working here, some of them studying overseas, lots of them have got Rhodes Scholarships and Fulbrights mm -hmm. um, or are working with the United Nations and a whole range of things, but are all connected to each other. So if they need someone to help them with what they're doing at some stage, they've got a great group to call upon. Totally. And, and I bet that's just a natural ecosystem that helps them be the best version of themselves because they're all supporting one another. It's not like this tall poppy thing. No. Have you kind of, has that been a bit of a thing as well? What they have like feedback that these young kids, not young kids anymore, young adults, uh, you know, don't, I'm not getting held back. No, and I think, yes, because they're all highly aspirational young people anyway. And I think it's being around a group of similar people they go, yes, we can do this. Um, and yes, they can call on each other to do it. So Dave Sherwood now, who set up BiblioU, which is sort of like a Spotify for university techs, mm -hmm. he employs about 30 people out of London, but a number of them are from WA and some of them are other scholars, which is fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. So recently you've been awarded this amazing honour as West Australian of the Year. Yes. Congratulations. Yes, Thank you. How's that been? This journey. Uh, really exciting. Um, it is a great honour and it's definitely on behalf of the work that the Foundation does and that is a team effort. Mm. Um, it's also a great opportunity to be able to speak more about the importance of education. Um, so I think that's the great thing. But it also made me realise, you know, I've been quite overwhelmed by the amount of, you know, emails and texts and messages and things that I got from people who I don't necessarily know that well, but how highly people regard it and and love Australia and think that it's important. Mm. So that profile, because I've always, Fogarty Foundation has been quite, you know, it's not, it's uh, over the years I've seen it's been quite very humble. It's just doing the work in the community, but this has given you a huge platform, would you say, uh, interstate, would you say? Uh, or it's always kind of a... Well, I, yes, I think, it, yes, definitely a bit more interstate. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to meeting the other you know, state recipients of the Australian of the Year Awards mm. in January and, you know, hopefully also making connections through that. Totally. And is there a, a part of the vision, will the Fogarty Foundation stay in Western Australia? Do you see it expanding into state or just focusing in, in Western Australia? Yeah, I think we will focus in on Western Australia. Um, I'm always surprised even after 20 years how much disadvantage and dysfunction there is in a wealthy state 
like WA, a wealthy country like Australia. So there's lots that we can do here. And I think we are best placed if we focus here where we know it well and that we know people that we can call on and businesses. You know, we are really fortunate being a foundation is a fairly privileged position in that people are really happy to help and we get help from a whole range of organisations and people. So yes, we will focus here, but some of the work we do in particularly the advanced program, where we work with school leaders in um, working in schools in disadvantaged communities, mm. we think what well, we know that we're learning a lot about school improvement, particularly right. in low SES areas, and we'd like to share this more widely. So mm. hopefully this will give us the opportunity to do that. So if there's teachers out there listening to this podcast, so you have a bit of a 101 and what that program is? Okay, so it's a three-year school improvement program, and it's very much about working with school leaders for them to set priorities and have a strategy. It's very much about change management, that they know what they would like to do in their schools, but particularly these challenging schools, they're faced with so many things, you know, they need to sometimes pick the kids up to get them to school, feed them, clothe them, deal with sexual violence and domestic issues, a whole range of things before they can even sit them down to teach them how to read and write and be numerate. So, Sometimes it's, you know, they're just fighting fires all the time. So this gives them the opportunity to be really strategic. They have workshops for the three years. They have a mentor for the three years. They can work with a cohort of other like schools. And we provide them with a whole range of um, diagnostic tools and international research, which is difficult for them to gather themselves. So anyway, building their their capacity to run their schools and be really focused in what they do. And so far it's been going for seven years. Um, At the moment we're working with 83 schools. So that's over 450 school leaders, which is impacting over 40,000 students. And all the schools have made some improvements, but 60% have made significant improvement, which means they've gone from being below like schools to like schools, or to state average, or some of them to national average. Mm. So the schools are, are working better, and the educational outcomes of those children are better, which means their life opportunities are better. So what are some of those metrics? So all, oh, congratulations, mm. they sound like fantastic stats. So those stats, like the, how the school is more likeable, is that something the kids give feedback on, feedback forms? They do. So there's we do run three different lots of diagnostics, organisational health index, which we do through McKinsey & Co., which is fabulous. TTFM, tell them from me, which is very much asking the students and the parents and the teachers um, how they're going, and a Leadership 360 uh, tool as well. But particularly looking at stats like NAPLAN, um, schools do gather a lot of data on how their students are progressing. NAPLAN is just one of them, but it is a really good indication of how students individually are going, Mm. but also how classes or how the whole Mm. school is going. So if the NAPLAN... Uh, schools are improving. It's a very good indication, obviously, that the educational outcomes are improving. Fantastic. And uh, so with all this work you're doing, you've got this um, big organisation that's having an impact indirectly, well, directly really 40,000 kids in school, these universities, kids and all. How do you manage your time? Like, obviously, the, there's a lot of people who want, it, want you at their school or their community. How do you kind of like manage that balancing act to still be you know, as present as you are right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, are there some like little um, personal hacks you have that you help you stay on top? Um, no, um, I think just the way that we've formed and grown the foundation from something quite small and gradually grown it and kept it 
it is not large. We have the equivalent of six full-time staff, which is fantastic and everyone is very focused and none of them regard it just as a job. They are there partly because it is a social purpose and they want to do something, so they all work extremely hard. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think just being very focused, there's so many opportunities out there, like we could do this, we could do that, but saying, okay, no, what can we do best and let's stay what, and do what can be impactful mm. so that we're not overloaded or mm. dilute what we're doing. So you've got a clear vision yes. for public accommodation. So what that vision, on a, on a back of a napkin, what is that vision? Well, it is to improve educational outcomes. It's to build thriving communities, um, particularly looking to see where there is a need in the education and where we as a foundation can come in and trial something new and hopefully, if it works, then try and scale that up. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Okay. So um, I guess that kind of links into this a little bit. Yeah, I am. Yes. <laughs> so your personal... You know, I guess you've got this real focus with the organisation. You've been uh, clear around what their goals and objectives are. And then if there is an uh, underserved need, you'll go and trial and test certain initiatives. So on a personal level, okay. how you manage that in yourself, like your, this is, I guess, your, your work here, um, is here. What we like doing when we have these AIR is actually talk about some of these, you know, these areas that are, you know, over the, point for that five and so talk to me about you know some of these well the work side of it and I think the question was are you getting stuff out of your work yeah and yes I definitely feel that I am I love what I do I'm doing you know I feel so lucky to do it I mean being involved in education anyway it's really positive um, but working in the foundation um, is great and I've got a lot of autonomy and ability to make change and particularly seeing we've been doing this now for nearly 20 years, we've got to know the sector really well mm -hmm. so I feel that we've, I've got a lot of expertise that I can offer. Um, so yes, I feel that um, I get a lot out of work. I think I, I do believe it's impactful what we do, so that's obviously satisfying, fulfilling. Um, one of the other ones across the other side says growth. I still think there's a lot of area for growth, both for me personally, I would love to know more and, and grow more and go out and see other great things that are happening. Um, so yes, I think those two are very related. Right. So if you were to increase, uh, like say, get like increase that growth or the work here, that is 6.95, mm -hmm. what do you reckon would be one thing you could do with the growth? Uh, yes, so it's or always what? limits of time. Right. You know, it wouldn't be great if we all had more time uh, to spend with friends because that's one thing which I have noted that I don't feel I have enough time that I spend with friends. Um, so, yes, how do you make... How do you make time happen? I don't know. It's just I trying to be strategic and and think about what you're doing. But you know, I think it's so much better to be really busy with lots of opportunities rather than not have to not having opportunities. And I guess being so immersed in purposeful work that takes up your time and energy and gives you the energy and you find time for the stuff that is absolutely a must. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. um, and so we did have a bit of a yarn about some of these ones as well. Like, so for sleep, you, you looked, we had a bit of a jab, and you're like, oh, four, you know, 4.4. 4. It's, it's not that bad or whatever. <laughs> but you were saying five is so like a good, would be a good level. 
And then what would a seven be like of sleep? Would that be excessive sleep? Or Yeah, I guess maybe I looked at looked at these questions a little differently for each one. So yes, sleep I feel I don't get just quite enough. So that's why I put it just below five and anything over five, I guess it wouldn't be too much. But um, <laughs> yeah, so if I rated it as I did some of the others, yes, maybe it should have been rated a little higher because I get quite a lot of sleep. Okay. It would just be nice to have a bit more. Yeah. It was interesting though because we've done this IAM podcast, there are these uh, six, seven questions with everyone. And out of all these segments, we averaged everything out. And sleep is the, for lack of a better word, but it's the lowest kind of perceived mm-hmm. area um, that everyone's getting out of everyone. Which is kind of interesting because a lot of people are coming in uh, quite ambitious individuals, running different organisations, Olympic athletes, to business entrepreneurs, sleep is a bit of a, a, a weak thing. So you sound weak strength, sleep is actually quite a strong thing for you. Do you have like a ritual sleep or? Um, no, you know, usually head to bed, reasonably the same time, usually up at six. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. So bed at the same time, most well, days? Yes, and it's exciting and, and, and great that other things are happening out there. But uh, yes, and yeah, and when I go to sleep, I usually sleep pretty well. So that's good. I know other people don't. So I think that's a positive. Fantastic. So what are the, just, just before we wrap it up, what are the kind of the things for 2020 that you're most looking forward to? Obviously, the Australian Year Awards coming up. Yes. So on Australia Day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, whatever happens there. What's kind of your things like on a personal level that you're looking forward to and a professional level that you're looking forward to this coming year? Yeah, well, definitely receiving this award and the possibility of what might be, but definitely the opportunity to connect with a lot of other people and, as I said, speak a lot more about education. You know, I think we take education for granted. We just expect the government's going to provide education and I think it's everyone's responsibility. But also because of our changing workforce and our changing world, that fact that it is changing so rapidly and it is becoming so much more digital, education is going to need to change. Mm. And how we get education will change, as in you might still go to school, but you might be doing an online course somewhere, you might be doing a unit at university and getting a credit for it, you might be learning how to code, you might be doing some work experience or internships. So it's going to be more of a portfolio of education and it's going to have to be a lifelong journey so it's not just something like a preparation before a job which is what it has been considered previously but because jobs will be changing even if you have studied you've got a job things will change you're going to have to need to keep learning so everyone is going to have to take more agency for their own learning instead of just accepting education that's going to have to be well this is my education and I'm going to make the most of it but how do you enable that in young children so there's a education is always dynamic but it feels as though we're in a bit of a seismic shift at the moment about how we need to look at education and it's not just going to be schools and unis or TAFEs but you know obviously employers are going to have to get much more involved in retraining their staff Um, yes so that's exciting and I think also people don't realise how much inequity there is in education. We've got a great education system, but just not every child gets the same opportunity because of the challenges that I talked about earlier. So also highlighting that and the fact that schools need more support to be mm-hmm. able to offer the services they do. So 
that on a professional and for the foundation, that's a big part. And next year we will be 20, so we'll have a few celebrations. Are you on the invite list? Absolutely. Um, Personally, it's a big year. I'm turning 60, so that's exciting. So happy. Um, Yes, and our daughter Kate's turning 30, so that's (laughs) big as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a great year next year. Yeah, okay. My ears really um, kind of tuned in when you said around, you know, employees, people are in the workforce, and all of a sudden things are shifting so much. So, say, people may have been in the stable job for the last five or even 10 years, these Gen Ys, so anyone born up until 94. So, some of them, like a lot of myself, including Katie, you know, they may be in a comfortable job, they're pretty good, but do you feel like those people are going to have to, if they're listening in today, how do they kind of seek these kind of upskilling education? What's kind of out there right now? Yeah, well, we do know that a lot of jobs, we know, we know blue collar jobs um, are changing because things are becoming a lot more automated and mm. robotic, but accountancy and lawyers and things like that, it's changing so rapidly. The service industry. Yeah. So that and you know particularly with artificial intelligence and that's going to um, have an immense impact on us in the next five to ten years so even though you might be in a steady job and be fully employed at the moment that doesn't mean that's always going to happen and we do know that young people not only will they have a whole range of jobs and careers but also they'll probably have a portfolio you know we talk about the gig economy that they might not have a full-time job with a monthly pay packet coming into their bank account they might be doing some consulting, have a part-time job somewhere, and they're gonna to have to manage that, sometimes being fully employed and sometimes not being, um, and how you manage that income um, stream coming through. But also, okay, well, what what's coming up next? Where else can I use my skills? So what else do I need to learn? So I need to keep doing courses. Um, there's gonna be a lot more micro-credentialing, so people will still get degrees and we still will need to go deep into some areas mm. but there'll be lots more micro credentialing in that people won't want to spend three years doing another postgraduate degree but might do coding and a bit of this and a bit of that and bring that together for the skills that they think they're going to need for the jobs that they're going to want so but you need to have a different mindset to approach um education to do that that was a gem i love that so much i want to share that with all my <laughs> mates and myself included because you kind of feel in this transition like our parents you know doing a university degree or getting some sort of apprenticeship and accreditation sort of skill set that served them quite well for this gen y generation and the gen x yeah, gen z coming through the millennials um but that kind of guidance mentorship isn't necessarily relevant like you get that career that initial one and do you not necessarily have to do the same degree? Obviously, a lot of people do still get continually educated. Mm. In the, in the, say you get a job at West Farmers or larger organisations, but some of the SMEs, you know, those jobs may not be relevant indeed. So it's really on us to have, be uh, with our own agency to stay relevant, to stay, um, if it's not employable, but just income generational or whatever word it is yes, in yeah. the gig economy. Mm. Um, I think it's a really nice way to kind of finish off and is there anything else you'd like to add around yeah no i think we've covered a lot thank you very much annie thanks lucky